This is The Gem on the Queen's Crown, a podcast talking about Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio sports. Here's the host, Lee W. Mowen. And this is episode 14 of The Gem on the Queen's Crown. We have a special guest for you to talk about the wonderful world of soccer because there's still stuff happening in the off season. Today I'm joined by Chad Hollingsworth. Chad, what's up, my friend? Oh, Lee, just getting ready for Thanksgiving and Christmas and keep an eye on the soccer world. I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Chad is the creator of Scratching the Pitch, a great soccer blog, and it's being relaunched with a focus of Ohio soccer from all levels. And Chad is also the gentleman responsible for making my new logo for the podcast. I don't know whether or not I should apologize for that. (laughs) Oh, no. Pretty much my logo was kind of like, here, here's some things type of thing. But I really like the logo you did. And I know you can't see the smile on my face because this is a audio recording. But I do promise you I love the new logo. (laughs) That's great. I'm glad you like it. Before we get into episode 14, just a quick reminder for everyone, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, StreamPod.net, TheLeeWMallon.com, and the Gem City Sports Network. There's a lot of ways to listen into the podcast. Also, you can follow me, the Lee W. Mallon, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and also give the Gem and the Queen's Crown a thumbs up. And Chad, where can the people follow you at? Uh, well, if they're interested in my personal life, they can find me on Twitter at Chad Hall. If they're more interested in my blogging exploits, they can find that at scratchingthepitch.com or on Twitter at Pitch Scratching. All right, Chad, let's get episode 14 kicked off. And hopefully I'll avoid every type of pun possible. I realized that yesterday I had a pun. That was a planned pun, though, that people might get a kick out of this episode. (laughs) But let's get underway. Big news here in Dayton, Ohio, start off. Dayton Dynamo have a new majority owner and are planning to join the pro ranks in 2019. And, Chad, you are the media relations director for the Dynamo. had to been big breakthrough when you found out about it. Yeah, I've actually been sitting on that news for some time. We were waiting to the appropriate moment to announce, and um, things kind of shook out to where last week was the right time, and uh, we were pleased to announce to the world that we have a new majority owner, Jared Davis, who is the founder and vice president of CNG Financial. If you are familiar with Check and Go, then you are familiar with CNG Financial. Uh, and Mr. Davis's personal financial resources actually allow us, under United States Soccer Federation guidelines, to join just about any professional soccer league that'll have us in the United States. Um, you know, if your listeners aren't aware, the Soccer Federation sets forth net worth guidelines for for soccer teams' ownerships, which determine sort of what level a professional soccer team can join, and uh, we're very happy that Mr. Davis allows us to join just about any league. There's a couple of leagues that the Dynamo are looking at, from what I understand. 
One of them is the NASL, and another one is the up-and-coming NISA. And someone threw out the idea of USL Division Three, which is kind of USL's way to fill where they were before jumping up to the Division Two in the pyramid. Yeah, and I obviously can't get into specifics. I can tell you that uh, of the three leagues that you named, one or maybe more of them have piqued our interest. We have filed a letter of intent with the professional league, but the state of professional soccer in the United States right now is in a little bit of flux with uh, USSF denying D2 status to NASL, NASL filing a suit, um, a judge denying the grounds of that suit, now NASL appealing that suit. (laughs) So... We don't really know how things are going to shake out. I think uh, Peter Wilt, who's heading up the NISA effort, is kind of in a holding pattern right now, waiting to see what happens with NASL, which puts a lot of teams like the Dayton Dynamo also in a holding pattern, waiting to see what shakes out with uh, which leagues are designated at, at which levels. So as soon as that stuff gets straightened out, we'll be able to figure out where we fit best. And uh, regardless of where we end up, we are going to bring a professional experience both on the pitch and off. We're looking to uh, have a quality product on the pitch and an entertaining experience for all of our fans who come out to the stadium. And before I move on with that thought, David Satterwhite, who was the owner of the Dynamo, he's still with the organization, but now he's in a minority role. So when he got that opportunity, I bet he was excited to see the growth of what the Dynamo can bring. Yeah, this has been David's dream from the very beginning. Um, you know, the Dayton Dynamo obviously started off uh, as the Cincinnati Saints, and what they really were in the very beginning were, were a Sunday League team. And it kind of grew organically from that. You know, they were a decent Sunday League team. They stuck together, formed an amateur sign sanctioned by the United States Adult Soccer Association. They played indoor seasons in the uh, NPSL and uh, outdoor seasons in the National National Premier Soccer League. It's grown. The the market in Cincinnati, although David paved the way with with his Saints, it kind of got too small for him with the introduction of FC Cincinnati. So David moves his, his franchise up to Dayton two summers ago. They begin competing as a Dayton Dynamo, and this is what David has been looking forward to for so many years is is the ability to have a fully professional soccer team, and I'm truly happy for him. All the time and all the money that he sacrificed that he's finally able to realize his dream. And it's big for everyone involved with the Dynamo. You and I, I mean, I'm the play-by-play voice. I took over for Jeremy Lance this season, but... It's huge. It's used to have professional soccer back to Dayton, and this is a big opportunity for everyone involved. Yeah, and it sounds like they're going to try to do it the right way. Um, you know, previous incarnations of professional soccer in Dayton involved playing at high school fields, mm-hmm. and while I threw everything that I had into support of the Dutch Lions when they were playing in USL Pro. Um, the team just wasn't quite marketed the way I felt it should be, and you know, there are a lot of soccer fans in the Dayton area who just didn't want to go watch 
the beautiful game in a high school environment. And I understand that. So hopefully once we get our new stadium and we can put things on in a professional environment, we'll be able to get the kind of support that we need and we'll really see soccer blow up in the gym city. Now, you mentioned a new place to play for the Dynamo as they're looking to move up in the ranks and become a pro team. Roger Glass, like you mentioned, beautiful, beautiful stadium. I liked I liked when the Dynamo were there in 2017. But you mentioned it needs to have the pro flair. So what information can you hint about where the Dynamo could be home next year or next uh, 2019? Well, I can tell you that we are exploring all options and there, there's going to be a few criteria that need to be met. Number one, we're looking for something in the downtown area. We want this to be for the city of Dayton and, you know, folks in the surrounding communities and suburbs can head downtown and watch a soccer team that truly belongs to the city of Dayton. Uh, we also want this to be our own stadium. So we want to have control of scheduling. We want to have control of revenue and things of that nature, things that are hard to do when you don't own your own stadium. So that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to own a stadium, whether that is to find a parcel of land and build a stadium from the ground up, or whether it's to find an existing structure and remodel it to suit our soccer-specific needs. Uh, beyond that, I can't give out too many details. I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to crimp any any deals that might be in the works at this point. But you mentioned an important criteria, being downtown. And since, actually for the entire lifetime of the Saints slash Dynamo, David's always done a great job making it intertwined with where it is in the city. I mean, the first two years of the Dynamo... You had shuttles from the Dayton Beer Company over to Welcome Stadium, and Dayton Beer Company is still one of the big sponsors of Dynamo Soccer. So, I love I love the upcoming plans and what can really happen for the Dynamo. Yeah, that's one of the things that we're really about. Um, a lot of soccer teams will give lip service to community and. You know, I think we're going to talk about Columbus Crew SC a little bit later on, mm -hmm. and that's what I mean by lip service to community, right? Mm -hmm. But David and the Dynamo really, truly try to integrate themselves into the community and become a part of that, you know, sort of that rising tide lifts all ships sort of phenomenon. You know, <clears throat> if it's good for the Dynamo, then we want it to be good for the community and, and vice versa. So that's where we try to get involved with local small businesses and even some local larger businesses to to become a part of that and, and truly integrate the fans and the city into what we're trying to do with the team. You also mentioned big companies around here. I mean, Voss is one of the biggest auto dealerships in the Miami Valley. I mean, they're the jersey sponsors for the Dynamo. It's, it's a very exciting time, but that also means, also in the press release that you typed up and I read that 2018 means there's no team and it's spent 
using to prepare for 2019 and what this pro team can do. Yeah, we took a look at the situation that we were in with wanting to move professional, and the decision was ultimately made that we couldn't operate an NPSL team the way that we wanted to and split our attention with trying to get a professional organization off the ground. So unfortunately, we're going to lose all the momentum from a, a fantastic 2017 season. And um, as we wait and plan for a professional team in 2019, uh, allow me to personally apologize to our core of, of devoted fans, particularly those in the Gem City Squadron, who were looking forward to, at the very least, a repeat of the success we had last year. Uh, I promise you won't be disappointed when we come back. Now, with 2018 being dark, what can fans, what can staff, what can people do to help out with the Dynamo to make sure that 2019 is stronger than ever? Well, I, I think that uh, if you're a fan of the team, what you might really consider doing is getting involved with the Gym City Squadron, who is our unofficial supporters group. And uh, I think during this dark period, as you called it, um, help shed some light, um, spread the word as as best as you can. You know, we're doing we'll be doing our part in terms of you know issuing press releases and, and getting the word out from a corporate level, but. You know, I mentioned earlier that we want to be part of the community, and there's no better way to spread the word than than through word of mouth and a grassroots movement in the community. So get involved with the Gym City Squadron, find out what they're all about and and the different methods that they're going to be using to spread the word about the Dynamo while we take this season off. And they're a good bunch of folks too. Hopefully, one day I'll have them on the podcast as well. They're some of the loudest people you can meet, and it was always a joy to hear them chant for 90 minutes for every match. It's it's insane to think how much commitment that they have to this game, to this team, and every game they're there. Every game. And uh, even in our playoff run, they ended up traveling a fair bit of distance to follow us. You know, they followed us first to... Uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, to witness our first ever playoff win, and then up to uh, Detroit and Keyworth Stadium to watch us fight admirably in the Midwest Regional Playoffs last year, and then managed to stick around and, and cheer on Detroit City after after we made our exit. They are a boisterous, spirited group of, of guys and gals, and uh, we hope that their success continues along right with ours. Here with Chad Hollingsworth talking Sunday soccer and the big news about the Dayton Dynamo. Just to recap, new majority owner Jared Davis and David Satterwhite, still part owner of now for the Dynamo, looking to go pro, looking for a new place to play, and as Chad said, hoping to find something downtown where it belongs to the city of Dayton, own place, and it's going to be an exciting time. We're really thrilled about about what's going on. It's a big time in Dayton as we travel down towards Cincinnati. It's a big time in the Queen City as well with NC Cincinnati news. And before I move on, I do want to point out the fact that I forget who said it, so I can't properly credit it. But if it wasn't for FC Cincinnati, we here in Dayton wouldn't have the Dynamo. 
Yeah, this is true. The uh, the birth of FC Cincinnati a couple years ago gave genesis to the uh, reincarnation of the Dayton Dynamo. So I, I guess we owe them some small debt of gratitude. And we look at FC Cincinnati's situation. They're two years old now. They completed their second USL season. And what a year they had, especially in the U.S. Open Cup. Not a lot of playoff success thus far for FC Cincinnati, but... See what they're bringing into Nippert Stadium those two seasons. It's it's quite impressive. Oh, yeah. It, it's been a fantastic couple years for FC Cincinnati by any stretch of the imagination, both on and off the pitch. When they were born a couple years ago, I didn't know what to expect, especially playing in a college football stadium like Nippert Stadium. That turned out to be much better than I think anyone ever could have hoped at, at the very outset. You know, I, I wondered how empty it would look for a USL team to play in a stadium that seats, I think, on the order of magnitude of 30,000 fans. And that's a lot of empty seats, potentially. But they have done a fantastic job of, of exciting the fan base in Cincinnati. And very few empty games or empty stadiums when FC Cincinnati is in town. And like you said, tremendous success on the pitch. Also, not so much in the playoffs. Uh, but they did have a fantastic Open Cup run this year, upsetting a few MLS teams along the way. They uh, upended the Columbus Crew in the Hell is Real match, and then they put out the fire with that amazing penalty kick shootout match, and then finally succumbed to the, uh, the New York Red Bulls late in that Open Cup run. Not quite as successful in the league this year as they had been in the previous year, I think uh, they exerted a lot of energy in that cup run, which had something to do with that. Um, but it's hard to be too upset with making the playoffs in each of your first two years in existence. I know there are some teams who've been around for a while in USL who would love to make it half that often. So great success for FC Cincinnati on and off the field. And also a former Cincy Saints slash Dayton Dynamo employee, DJ. He's the media guy for FC Cincinnati as well. And I always like seeing the updates of how many records uh, via attendance that FC broke for every game. It seems like they were drawing like 30,000 for a lot of the games. Yeah, especially the bigger games. You know, we've had those friendlies with Crystal Palace and, uh, and the, I think it was the Italian team that came in this year. And I forget which one it was. Pardon my ignorance. Val and then, Valenti, you know, Valenta, something like that. Yeah, and then the big league games, of course, in the in the playoff. Or well, we haven't had a home playoff game, but the uh, the bigger Open Cup games drew extraordinary crowds, and it seems like every week they're setting a new attendance record down there in the Queen City. So good for them. If it's if it's good for FC Cincinnati specifically, it is good for soccer in America as a whole. And plus, there were some days where FC Cincinnati outdrew the Cincinnati Reds, one of the oldest baseball teams out there. I mean, if you know how the Reds did this year, you might understand why. But still, outdrawing one of the oldest teams in Cincinnati, and you're just done with two seasons in the books, that's huge. Yeah, I think it speaks to the latent fan base that existed in Cincinnati for professional soccer for a long time and it also speaks to the quality job that 
that uh, General Manager Jeff Birding and the rest of the FC Cincinnati st staff have done with not only putting together a quality product on the field, but providing an excellent game day experience down there at Nippert Stadium. Kudos to uh, Mr. Birding and, and the entire staff down there. Now the big news about FC Cincinnati, of course, is joining the MLS, the Major League Soccer, and finding a new place to play because, if you don't know, MLS doesn't like non-soccer-specific stadiums, with the exception of Atlanta, just because that was brand new, bam, type of thing. Yesterday, Cincinnati Inquirer had this release talking about how MLS actually talked to Hamilton County people and said that, no, Paul Brown Stadium is not a good place for FC Cincinnati to play. Because that was one of, um, I forget who the guy was, I probably should have this article in front of me, uh, but he wanted FC Cincinnati to go to Paul Brown because, A, you know, that's a nice stadium, go there. We don't want to build a new one and have all this tax money going over there. And B, he also mentioned that the Bengals could move, which is possible for any team out there, let's be honest. So Chad, what were your thoughts about some of this earlier news about what Hamilton County people said? Well, I'm going to preface this whole discussion with the notion that I thought Nippert Stadium was a terrible idea for the USL team, and I was extraordinarily wrong about that. So let's let's frame my opinions on the rest of the stadium issues bearing that in mind. So everything I say here could be entirely wrong, but I hope it's not. Uh, the thing about MLS wanting to have their teams in soccer-specific stadiums is, I think, twofold. One, it's about aesthetics. Uh, proper soccer stadiums, in my opinion, provide a, a very intimate fan experience uh, in terms of interaction with the game. In general, the seats are very close on top of the action, um, unlike some of the more cavernous stadiums you see in the United States for for American football. And Paul Brown would be an example of a, of a more cavernous stadium if you were trying to watch a soccer game. Uh, it's more difficult to generate the kind of intimacy and the kind of electric atmosphere in Paul Brown that FC Cincinnati could generate in a soccer-specific stadium where the seats were, were closer to the action. But the real thrust of this argument in terms of MLS wanting teams in soccer-specific stadiums has more to do with the fact that MLS wants its team to have complete control over their stadiums, much like I was talking about with the Dayton Dynamo and reasons why we wanted to exercise control over the stadium. You know, if you have complete control over your own stadium, then you control the schedule and you control all of the revenue, and that includes concessions, that includes stadium naming rights, so on and so forth. There's just a lot of financial hardship when it comes to operating in a stadium that you don't totally control. MLS is aware of this, and they're trying to set their teams up for success, and that's why Paul Brown Stadium would not work for FC Cincinnati. Um, we did mention the Atlanta exception, and it should be noted that Arthur Blank, who owns the Atlanta Falcons, also owns Atlanta United. So although it's not a soccer-specific stadium per se, 
the same ownership group has complete control over the stadium. So a lot of those financial hurdles are overcome due to the fact that it's one ownership group there. You know, they're looking at a couple different sites down there in Cincinnati proper or very near Cincinnati proper. Uh, the the uh, Oakley site, which is near uh, the Norwood Lateral in 71, and then also Newport. And I think either one of those sites would be just fine for an FC Cincinnati stadium, depending on how the politics shake out. I like both sites, too. Oakley is fairly close to downtown. It's only a couple minutes off 71. I say a couple minutes, but if you hit traffic jams, then it feels like an eternity downtown, but that's not the point. Oakley's a nice spot because where they want to build it, it's where 71 and 562 intersect. That's where the Norwood lateral ends, and there's big plazas there. There's a mire. There's a couple big stores there. And where they want to put it, it's easy to see right off the highway. And that's the key thing you want. Visibility. Like, ooh, what's that? It sparks interest. So I really like the Oakley site. And Newport, it's a nice site too. You can see it right off the river. Uh, some people mention that because it's in Kentucky, it's not really Cincinnati. But considering it's part of the Cincinnati Metro, you shouldn't really have any complaints. And you can see right across the river. So... I don't see a problem with either of those two. Uh, Chad, which one in your preference would you rather see FC Cincinnati go with? Well, only because there's such a huge build-it-here movement, I'd like to see it at the Oakley site because I think for for reasons that I don't entirely agree with, uh, the club would risk alienating at least a small portion of its fan base if it went across the river in the Newport. Um, and that's that's really my only preference for the Oakley site. Um, I think the Newport site is just as viable right across the river with a view of the Cincinnati skyline from the stadium. Um, I think some of the same problems that exist in terms of infrastructure are there in both sites. There are concerns about traffic, although I know at the Newport site, uh, the state of Kentucky and the city of Newport have done some things to alleviate some of the traffic headaches. Uh, either way, there's there's infrastructure issues. Uh, so I think to me, though, really, when it comes down to it, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. So just because of the aesthetic of being in Ohio, I, I, would, I would lean towards the Oakley site. And when these teams build new stadiums, what sort of things should they focus on to help the game day experience to make it a true soccer home and possibly a place where, you know, if FC Cincinnati isn't using it, maybe say, hey, State of Ohio, have your playoffs here too. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. Um, You know, if you can build it with multi-use in mind, and I'm not talking about necessarily multiple sports, but if you can build it with the idea that you can host other types of soccer games, um, whether it's high school playoffs or if it's college showcases at the club level or, you know, lots of soccer stadiums are also used as places to hold concerts. So those are a great idea. I think when you build the stadium, you want it to have a nice, clean, modern look, but you don't want it to be uh, so modern that 
it appears to be outdated in a few years, if, if you know what I mean. So if you can have a little bit of neoclassical look to it, that's, that's fantastic. You want it to stick out um, in terms of, like you said, you're driving down the highway, you want it to draw your attention. Oh, well, that's, that's a place where things happen. You want to keep in mind all of the amenities that will be needed for fans uh, in terms of sight line, uh, proximity to the pitch, concessions, restrooms. So lots of things need to be considered when building a stadium, and they all need to be geared towards fan experience. Not to get too out of the way on this topic, but one thing I do like about the Cruz Mafe Stadium is that you can see it pretty well on 71. I know it's north of downtown, and I know that's an issue that we're going to talk later, but again, visibility, you see it, and you talk about it. Things happen like that, so hopefully, wherever they do pick FC Cincinnati, hopefully they have that in mind. And also, they could also consider, you know, maybe starting like a college soccer tournament, like a regular season tournament, have Cincinnati or Xavier or both host it, you know, men's, women's soccer there. I mean, heck, Nippert Stadium, they did that when FC Cincinnati season was still going on. I think uh, UC and NKU, and in fact, I think they broke the women's soccer NCAA attendance mark for like... 7,000 or something like that. It was it was insane. But there's a lot of possibilities with this with this new stadium and I know I I don't live in Hamilton County. I don't pay Hamilton County taxes. So I know that's an issue. I know that's been one of the negative things about that. But the one thing that you have to remember too, the owner said that, "Hey, I'll build the stadium with my own coin." He just wants the infrastructure from Hamilton County. That's when do you get owners that will build stadiums out of their own pocket? Yeah, I think that's a, a very magnanimous step that the ownership group has taken down there for FC Cincinnati. I personally am not big on using public funds for, for building stadiums, but Carl Linder and the other owners have offered up $200 million of their own money to construct the stadium. And they're asking for, I think, $70, $75 million from Hamilton County and the city of Cincinnati for infrastructure. Um, you know, that's, that's still public funds. It's, it would come in the form of a TIF, which would be related to uh, revenue generated from, from existing financial vehicles. I think right now the Hamilton County Commission is leaning towards supplying a, a small fraction of that money uh, and to build a parking garage or something of that nature, and they're going to use funds from another parking garage, I believe, to help generate the funds for a new parking garage. Uh, so it's it's still a long way from the 70 to 75 million that FC Cincinnati estimates is needed for infrastructure, but it is movement in the right direction, and I I think that's what the folks down there in Queen City are referring to as as the Plan B. So it seems like there's momentum heading in the right direction in terms of getting a stadium built in Oakley. Uh, we'll have to keep keep our eyes on it over the next few days. The uh, the deadline for having bids finalized for MLS, I believe, is December 14th. So we're we're starting to butt up against important deadlines. Chad, do you see this happening for FC Cincinnati? Um, 
I think that Jeff Birdie and Carl Lindner and the rest of the FC Cincinnati contingent will be able to work with uh, local politicians and get the stadium issue sorted out. If Oakley doesn't happen, I think things are setting up pretty nicely in Newport, although that TIF money hasn't started to, hasn't started to be generated down there in Newport yet. Um, I think one way or the other, the stadium is going to work itself out. So the real question becomes, will MLS grant FC Cincinnati one of the bids? And if you believe the soccer gone, uh, there are four, four spots left in expansion. He seems to indicate that after these four spots are announced that they're going to, at the very least, take a break in expansion. So there'll be two teams announced this December and two teams announced next December, according to all the, all the public reports. So Cincinnati is looking for one of those four spots. And they're competing with some other very good cities. Um, you, know, you look at Sacramento, who has done a fantastic job at the USL level and their stadium is ready to go. And then you're looking at cities like Nashville, who although they don't have a professional soccer team at the moment, they're, they're getting ready to start up in, in USL next season. And I believe their stadium deal is in place. And then other places like Phoenix and uh, Detroit are, are also in competition. I think Cincinnati's got a really good shot at being one of the four teams It'd be hard, hard for MLS to ignore the success that FC Cincinnati has had on and off the pitch. There might be some concern about the size of the television market in Cincinnati compared to some of these other teams. But my gosh, we, we've proven that we can do it the right way and generate excitement. So if that's something at all that MLS is interested in, I think that uh, FC Cincinnati's got a really good shot if not being one of the first two teams announced this December, then, then certainly being included next December as one of the second two teams. And you mentioned Detroit, too, as one of the cities looking for an MLS bid. They got shot down, uh, from what I read, because they wanted to use Ford Field. And Ford Field's a nice dome, but it's mainly for the Lions, the NFL team in town. So Detroit's kind of off the map. I mean... I don't know what they're using the old grounds of Pontiac Silverdome for, but hey, maybe you look out that way type of thing. I don't know. But I certainly hope that FC Cincinnati gets in as well. And one last point about FCC uh, before we move on. A lot of signings in this offseason. Like FC Cincinnati, after they lost the playoff game, they're ready to go and three signings already. Uh, Tyler Gibson was just announced about 45 minutes ago, and looks like he'll anchor some of the midfield for FC Cincinnati in 2018. Yeah, and, and before Tyler was announced, there were four pretty big signings. Uh, one coming yesterday, Forrest Lasso, who is a, a, a big center back who played the last three seasons for the Charleston Battery. FC Cincinnati fans will certainly be aware of him. He has scored goals against us. In uh, the previous two games that we played, uh, Forrest, like I said, he's a big six foot five center defender, three years of experience as a pro, um, in my opinion, has gotten better each year, was named to the USL first team, all league team this year. Um, I believe he led the league in scoring as a defenseman 
with six goals in 2017, and he also had 27 block shots. Forrest is uh, definitely going to be an asset. They signed a couple other guys to help anchor that defense. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to destroy the pronunciation of his name, but I think it's Deco Keenan, who is a 30-year-old Israeli defender who has spent the majority of his professional year with Maccabi Haifa. He was the captain of that team, and he's also a member of the Israeli national team. He's going to bring a lot of experience and a lot of professionalism to the club. And then another center back, Patty Barrett, is a 24-year-old Irish center back who has won two Irish Premier League titles with, with his teams over there. So a lot of focus on the defense, um, and that corresponds with the loss of Harrison Delbridge, who is an all-league USL center back who has decided to go back home to Australia and play, I believe it was with Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And then there's still the question of whether or not Austin Berry will resign, so on and so forth. One of the uh, offensive signings, if you will, one of the signings for, for a forward is Daniel Haber. He's a 25-year-old Canadian forward who scored seven goals and four assists last year with Royal Monarchs. But I think uh, his familiarity to head coach Alan Koch comes from their time together at Vancouver Whitecaps FC2 when the two of them were there in 2016. So Koch is is familiar with Haber's game and uh, knows what he what he brings to the table in terms of his ability to score and facilitate goals. It's also love international flavor coming in as well. I know, I think right after the playoffs, goes Koch hopped on a plane and went international, picked up a couple signings over the over the pond. That's pretty big, and it's pretty big momentum for FC Cincinnati walking into 2018. Yeah, and unless the rules change for 2018, we're allotted seven international spots per team, and I think we are at, I say we, I think FC Cincinnati is at six or seven right now. Uh, the, the Canadian Daniel Haber doesn't count against an international spot. But uh, with with other guys like um, like Joe Sue from India and uh, Justin Hoyt from England, we, we're pretty much near the limit of international guys that we can sign. So most of the rest of the signings you'll see from this point forward will be uh, from the good old United States. Chad Hollingsworth with me of Scratching the Pitch. We talked Dayton Dynamo news. We talked FC Cincinnati news. And now we move on to Central Ohio. Yes, I know, out of the range of what I normally talk about, Cincinnati, Dayton sports. But this is big for Southwest Ohio because there's a lot of crew fans around here, believe it or not. Hashtag save the crew. I'm sure you're familiar with it. I'm sure people are probably sick of me mentioning it on my podcast. But, Chad, it's it's big. It's one of MLS's original franchises. And Columbus helped open the first soccer-specific stadium for pros back in the late 90s. Columbus Crew is very important. Yeah, and it's kind of a shame what's going on here with, with pre-court threatening, and it's probably beyond threats at this point. It's, it seems eminent that... Columbus Crew is going to pick up and move down to Austin because of the history and, and the ties to the Columbus soccer community and the, the decades of support that they've received from the fans. You know, the libertarian in me says, okay, this is a business decision and Precord is free to do whatever he wants. 
and of course that's true, but it doesn't change the sort of emotional shadiness that, that goes along with it. He's ripping a team that has become a part of the fabric of the Columbus sports community and moving it to Austin um, just for the dollars and cents of it. And I've seen some reports, and I can't attest to the veracity of the reports, but they suggest that pre-court sports ventures and MLS to some degree have done some things behind the scenes to help suppress some of the financials to make it appear that the crew were not as viable in Columbus as they really were to help move this whole transaction from, from Columbus to Austin along its way. And that stinks also. And the other thing that really stinks about this is that if Precourt really wanted a team in Austin, he should have just bought an MLS franchise in Austin and, and gone through the expansion process and paid those fees. What he's done here is a shady end around to the expansion process by uh, buying the crew with that Austin escape clause and, and then just moving the club from its fan base. Not a huge fan of what I see going on here at all. I hate reading the reports on that. It's just, like you mentioned, he's a businessman. He can do what he feels good for his business, but this just, this just rubs me the wrong way. I know, I know it rubs most of Columbus the wrong way, but there is some reports that I saw from yesterday that are popping up, and I'm reading this off the Columbus Dispatch website. There's someone that's offering ground in downtown Columbus. It would be on the Avenue of Champions, which is kind of not close to Nationwide Arena. It's on the other side of the convention center. But it's right where you can see it off 670. You're by a major highway. And right now, all it is is just parking for semis. I mean, it's not like Columbus isn't trying. They want to keep the crew. They love the crew. But it's tough. I mean, Chad, what's your thoughts about the crew possibly going to the Arena District? I think it's a great idea, if I'm not mistaken, that it would be nestled a block or so away from Nationwide Arena. I think to have the, uh, the Columbus Crew SC Stadium located near the other major sports teams in town would be fantastic. You could help build some synergy that way. It wouldn't feel quite so disconnected from from downtown as Montfrey is now. What I'd really like to see happen at this point, because of my, my venom towards pre-court, let that SOB take his team to Austin, and let's find a new ownership group to carry on the Columbus Crew brand in a stadium located on the Avenue of Champions. It's something similar to what MLS would have done or what MLS did do with San Jose when when the San Jose franchise moved to Houston and became the Dynamo and then San Jose received a new franchise. Let's do something like that. Or for the NFL fans around, it, it'd be similar to what happened with Cleveland when Modell moved the Browns to Baltimore, but the Browns' name and records and everything remained with Cleveland until the NFL put a new team in Cleveland. Let's, I'd like to see something like that because I don't want any more of my soccer dollars going to pre-court sports ventures. 
So I'd like to see the crew stick around uh, with all of the history and everything that goes with that. But I'd like to see my entertainment dollars going towards a, a better and new custodian of the brand, if you would. The only thing I hope, if that does happen to Columbus, you know, the Cleveland moving to Baltimore and then Cleveland 2.0, hopefully the crew 2.0 wouldn't be, you know, as bad as the Browns are today, the Cleveland Browns are today. Ooh. Man, I'm still... I'm still shaking my head on the fact that they're like one in twenty-five or something under Hugh Jackson, something like that. But I think we can rest comfortably knowing that it's near impossible for any sports team to be as bad as the Cleveland Browns are today. You say that, but there's always that one <laughs> exception that happens, and then it's like, oh. But the map I'm looking at. Nation Arena and Huntington Park are pretty close together, and then about the same distance is the Greater Columbus Convention Center, and about the same distance between the Convention Center and where they want to build this new stadium, there's the Spirit of Columbus Park. That's perfect. I mean, it's a slight walk to get to all the bars of Arena District, but here's the thing. I I never really got the whole complaints mainly because I'd never been to a game at Moffray Stadium, but I always thought Moffray Stadium was pretty close to downtown, like a couple minutes away type of thing. But I also get the fact that there's no after-game scene around Moffray Stadium, so I get that too. Yeah, I think the people on Hudson Street would like to see the crew stay where they are. It's It's good walking distance from all those homes over there. But like you said, there's not a lot of, in terms of other forms of entertainment for before or after the match. So um, perhaps some of those complaints are justified. Um, I don't think at the MLS level you're going to see a lot of folks doing what the Dynamo have done in terms of shuttling fans to and from bars and, and local watering holes. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I, I think just having something that feels more connected to the rest of, of the uh, urban core would be helpful. And plus, like I mentioned while starting to talk about this, the crew is one of the first pro teams in Columbus. I mean, I know the Clippers have been there for years, but that's minor league AAA affiliate of now the Cleveland Indians. But crew is very important to Columbus. And you take that away, then... Outside Blue Jacket season, what do you have? Oh, yeah, Ohio State. Don't remind me of that. But, I mean, during the summer, what do you got? Are you going to watch this Austin team that moved from Columbus because pre-court didn't want to stay in Columbus? No. And besides, Austin had a USL team, the Aztecs, and they only lasted, what, one or two seasons after they announced they were coming back? And that was a crew affiliate for a while before they went to Pittsburgh? Yeah, and the other thing about Austin, uh, a little bit of lower division soccer history for those who aren't aware, they've been in Columbus's spot before. Before the recent incarnation of the Austin Aztecs, there was a previous USL Austin Aztecs team whose owner, Phil Rollins, decided that Austin wasn't the right market for him, ripped that team from Austin and moved it to Orlando. And we've seen what's happened with Orlando. It's worked out well for Rollins and, and fans of soccer in Central Florida, but 
Austin, by and large, has been left with a soccer vacancy since that time. It, you mentioned the, the one or two seasons that the Aztecs returned in USL before flooding killed their stadium, and then they, they haven't been able to return. So, you know, Austin's been... Then Austinites know how this feels, is what I'm trying to get at. So, I wonder if if fans of soccer in Austin are so Machiavellian that they really want a team in, in this manner. I I would hope not. And I hope people realize that the people of Austin, Texas, are not the enemy of Columbus, Ohio. It's the ownership. And just the way this is going down is just... It's, it's not good. And plus, remember... In the MLS in Texas, you got the Houston Dynamo, like Chad mentioned. You got FC Dallas. San Antonio's try to get in on the market. And they they filed a grievance against the MLS in pre-court because of all this. Because they felt like they got screwed, to put it mildly, about this whole, hey, Austin's getting the team. Yeah, I, I agree with, with the position that San Antonio is taking. They totally got the shaft. Um, they did not enter into this MLS bid with all of the information that the league had. And uh, this is really shady. And I wonder if there might not even be some potential litigation in, in the future should Columbus actually move its soccer team to Austin. I, because I can't imagine that MLS would, would plunk two teams in Texas with such close proximity to each other, it, it doesn't make sense from from a diversity of markets standpoint uh, to to have an MLS team in Austin and in San Antonio at this point in time. So yeah, San Antonio really got got the shaft on this. It's just not a good situation all around for the crew. And like I mentioned, I'm fully on the hashtag Save the Crew bandwagon. I mean, heck, when I was in college, I interviewed the Yellow Nation Army, who still goes to games. The supporters group is no longer official, but they're a good bunch of people. They're a good bunch of guys that I interviewed, and I feel terrible about them just because of the fact that they might not have a team come 2020. And that's not fair to Columbus. Not fair to anyone who's been involved with, with Columbus Crew SC for the past 21 years. Like we mentioned, one of the first MLS teams. And I can only just shake my head at this point. Chad, do you think that Columbus will get a new MLS stadium? Or do you think that the crew are doomed to go to Central Texas? Uh, I I think Precord has his mind made up. I think he wants to be in Austin. I don't think this was ever really about a new stadium in Columbus. I think he's had his his eyes set on Austin from the get-go. And he can talk all he wants about trying to build relationships in Columbus and trying to get corporate support and how he puts so much in, into the rebrand. And all that's well and good. It doesn't, it doesn't change my mind. I think that he's been wanting Austin from the very beginning, and there's no other reason to put that escape clause into his original contract if that were not the case. Joined with Chad Hollingsworth, we mentioned the three pro teams in the triangle of Cincinnati, Columbus, and Dayton sports, and now we're going to talk about the man 
the myth, the legend, Chad Hollingsworth. Chad and I have something in common. And no, it's not soccer fans. It's not people that live in Dayton. It's not whatever you can think of. It's that we're both public address announcers for soccer. Chad happens to be the voice of the Bellbrook Golden Eagles JV squad. And tell me how your first season went with the Eagles, Chad. Uh, yeah, this was actually my second second season with the uh, with the JV squad, and it was it was a lot of fun. Um, I love having a microphone in my hand, and I love having soccer in front of my eyes. So when you combine the two, I'm pretty much in hog heaven, and uh, I love love being on the microphone for the Golden Eagles, and I can't wait to move up to varsity next year. I, I tend to approach my public address announcing duties with a mixture of sass and class. So uh, I'm a little little informative and a little humorous if you happen to share my brand of humor. You got to give me an example. Uh, give me a PA oh, example. Give me a PA demo right here on the podcast now. A PA demo right here on the podcast. Yes. Uh, well, let's, let's say there was uh, – a call by one of the referees on the field that I don't disagree with. I might say something about how the referee interpreted the laws of the game differently than I did. <laughs> or uh, when I'm promoting the uh, concession stand there at Miami Valley South Stadium, I'll invite people to uh, head to the concession stand for one of the plethora of palate-pleasing portions for their eating edification. <laughs> uh, things of that nature. Do you get excited about corner kicks? Uh, I do get excited about corner kicks, but I get more excited about goals. Um, in fact, I have uh, a, the sound of an eagle screech that I play whenever one of the Golden Eagles scores a goal, and it just turns out nicely that the word Golden Eagles, <laughs> Golden Eagles, works out very well when I'm, I'm making a goal call for, for Bell Brook at, at home. I love it. You said you're moving up to varsity next season? Yeah, Bill Vine, who's been the voice of the Varsity Golden Eagles for the last couple years, is is moving on with the graduation of his daughter, so I'll be handling both junior varsity and varsity duties for uh, nice. for Bellbrook in the next couple seasons. Congrats, Chad. I'm proud of you. Thank you, sir. You know, as a PA announcer for Dayton Flyers men's soccer, we uh, both do the similar thing with the goal. You know how the fight song for Dayton is, Go Dayton Flyers. Well, yeah, yeah. When, when the Flyers score, I go, Go Dayton Flyers. Nice. I don't, I don't know if the fans catch that or not. I don't know if the fans hear me or not, but <laughs> my favorite part is the Red Scare when they come out to men's soccer games. About in NCAA, we have to mention when there's one minute left and a half. So at 105, they'll start chanting, how much time is left? One minute to go in this half. Thank oh, you. Oh, that's nice. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> I love it. I, I always give them the microphone point. I, I love Red Scare. They're, they are great people. Uh, they have a drum there. They have uh, not smoke bombs, fog machine, I think. And they have a lot of flags they fly. I think one of them is the Erie Commodore's flag, though. Don't give up the ship. I'm not sure if anyone else has that phrasing, but I'm like, this is dynamo country, son. Put that flag away. 
we'll have to, we'll have to turn that Commodores fan into a Diamond Dynamo fan. Exactly. It's nice about soccer at UD at Bojan Field. Natural grass. It's free to get in. You got two choices of views. You can watch over the field on the upper level, or you can send the bleachers on the lower level and see everything close to that level. And it's a really nice place. It's a really nice place. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy soccer, Bojan. And it's got that unique setting. It's got that huge, huge wall on on the one end of the pitch that comes from the building that abuts the field. It's always fun to see misplaced strikes slam off that brick or potentially one of the windows. Uh, some of them, it seemed like a lot this year in 2017 where people just, they miss their kick so high and it goes on the roof and like, well, that's going to take 20 minutes for the groundskeeper guy to go up and get it. I mean, that, I think that's what I really like about it. I mean, it's very intimate, very close space. I mean, on the other side is a fence, but there's a tiny walkway in the middle, and then you have that building too, which is the indoor track for the Flyers. Beauchamp Field's very nice, and Alumni Field for Wright State's very nice too. I wish I had a clever goal chant for the Raiders, but I don't. So. (laughs) We're PA announcers for soccer. So how did the JV Eagles do? Well, the JV Eagles kind of took it on the chin a little bit this season. Um, finished with a record of, I think, six wins, five losses, and, and a handful of draws. It's actually the, the first time that the JV team has lost a game in a few seasons, um, which sort of speaks to the, the success that the varsity team has, has been able to have. Um, you know, JV's not necessarily about wins and losses. It's about player development, getting girls ready to play play for the varsity squad in, in the next year or two and certainly have some players on the JV squad this year who are going to be contributors for the Golden Eagles uh, at the varsity level, if not next year, then, and then definitely the year after. Definitely had some good sophomores and freshmen on that JV team who will uh, help replace the void of, of some of the seniors that were losing off of the varsity squad in 2018. You mentioned that the father of... Vine, the goalkeeper, she graduated. What's that situation look like for your Eagles next year? Well, Becca Vine uh, was an All-State goalie two years in a row, so it's going to be hard to replace her. We've got a a girl who's going to be a senior next year in Claire Baker, who is a fine goalie. I've been watching her throughout her youth career. I was part of a coaching staff that, that coached her for a couple years, and for that, I have to apologize to her. Um, but, but Claire's going to be just fine when she learns to develop a little bit more confidence in the skills that she does possess. Fantastic goalkeeper coach in Jeremy Ward, who comes to us from uh, University of North Carolina, Wilmington, I believe, who, who did a fantastic job with Becca and has done a fantastic job with Claire. So I think there, there will be some drop-off, obviously, going from a two-year All-State goalie to a young lady who hasn't got a lot of experience at the varsity level, but I'm fully confident that Claire will be able to get the job done for us. And then we have six other seniors that we lost from from the squad, all of whom contributed significantly. So we're going to take a hit a little bit in terms of the talent level with our most experienced players, but we've got a lot of good players coming back. 
Uh, we've reached the regional semifinals the last two years in a row, one of only three teams in Division Two who've done that, and we're looking forward to breaking through and going even further in the tournament next year. So it's going to take a, a concerted effort for Coach Zach Huffman and, and all the girls, but uh, I'm looking forward to what the Golden Eagles can do next year. Now, I know one of the answers to the question I'm asking, since I happen to go to a rival uh, Southwestern or Southwestern Buckeye League school. I was about to say Southwestern Ohio. It's like, that's hockey. Never mind. Um, SWBL rivalries. I know the biggest one is probably Valley View. What are some of the biggest conference foes for the women's soccer Bellbrook team? Yeah, um... You know, the last several years, it seems that we alternate SWBL titles with Monroe. Uh, they'll win one year, we'll win one year, and we'll trade off back and forth. Maybe sometimes we'll we'll tie for a championship. Uh, just so happens we have back-to-back championships in Bellbrook right now. So Monroe's a big rival. And then uh, you mentioned Valley View, and then Oakwood also is a big rival. Um, Oakwood, perhaps historically has been a slightly more affluent neighborhood than Bellbrook. And I think the perspective of uh, some of the uh, Bellbrook folks is that they sort of stick their noses up when it comes to Bellbrook. And um, I have per- personally witnessed some of the feelings of Oakwood fans towards Bellbrook. So there's there's no love lost there when it comes to competition on the field. That being said, I'd like to think that uh, once the contest is over, then then everyone goes back to being friends and members of the larger Miami Valley community. I mean, it's not like Bellbrook's a bad place. It's very nice. I live near there, and it's it's nice. Oh, it's nice certainly. I, I live in Bellbrook. Obviously, I think it's a nice area, and it's it's certainly not just a little farm town that it once was. Yeah, someone told me that, you know, Bellbrook was a farm area, and I just look at them like, what? It's not like Valley View. We have farms. That's about it. We got two villages of Farmersville, you know, farm in the town, town name. There you go. And Germantown. We don't have much around there. It's a, it's two country towns. And Bellbrook, I mean, you're close to Fairfield Commons, Dayton, Dayton Mall, excuse me. You're close to a lot of things in Bellbrook. I just, you yeah. know, it's nice that both schools kind of hit off 725. So there you go. There's the Battle of 725 for you. If anyone wants to use that. But, yeah, it's it's cool. It's great to see you follow the Bellbrook Golden Eagles, and I, I remember following the team along with you. That was a great season for the Varsity Eagles. It was a sad loss. I think Indian Hill was the loss in the playoffs, right, Chad? Yeah, we lost to Indian Hill in, in the uh, regional semifinals, and Indian Hill went on to win the state championship. They were an excellent team. Um so not a lot of shame in that loss. Uh, it wasn't as lopsided as, as the 3-0 scoreline would lead you to believe. Um, but certainly Indian Hill were the better team on that night, and we're the best Division Two team in the state this year, without a doubt. Indian Hill ended up winning the girls' Division Two title. Beaver Creek won the boys in Division One. Loveland in Division One won the girls. And Summit Country Day in Division Three won both boys and girls tiles in Cincinnati. I remember saying that, what was it, episode 12, episode 13? I'm not sure. But 
It's sad to see that soccer season's over. We're in the off season, but as we mentioned throughout this hour, there's still a lot of things happening, especially in the Sinday area, and it's big news. Yeah, yeah. If I mean, if you're as hardcore a soccer fan as I am, there's still soccer to be watched. If you're interested in in young men and young women who play at the uh, high school level, college showcases are still going on. Uh, the Galaxies are holding their soccer showcase this weekend at various locations throughout the Miami Valley. Tonight, in fact, Columbus Crew is hosting Toronto FC in, in the first leg of the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, so there's, there's still plenty of soccer to watch. And, um, you know, it's, we're not too far away from indoor season. Speaking of indoor season, do you like indoor soccer? I do enjoy indoor soccer. I don't get a chance to uh, head down to Cincinnati to watch as much of it as I would like, but uh, it's definitely fast-paced, and it's a little bit little bit different than the outdoor game in terms of spacing and speed and play off the walls and so on and so forth, but uh, it is exciting to watch. There was a time when the Cincinnati Saints had an indoor team, and my friend Keith Korkenda was the voice. He invited me to one of those games, and I watched it was a lot of fun. It's weird to see cards and penalty boxes in soccer. Normally that's hockey. But there is a chance to see indoor soccer, and it's the Cincinnati Swerve that play at the Game Time Training Center in Fairfield, Ohio, and their season kicks off the 2nd of December. Yeah, we need, we need to travel down there, Lee, and, and catch some of those uh, Cincinnati Swerve games. Yeah, I like that. I remember the one Saint game, I think it was against the Harrisburg Heat and I remember the Seven Hills Crusaders there. They were loud. It was a loud place. It was a great place, too. Great to see all that soccer there. And it's true, indoor soccer isn't as as strong as it once was. I mean, heck, you look at the first Dayton Dynamo team. That was an indoor team that started at Hera, that went to Wright State Center Center, and then the Convention Center just... Wow, it's not as strong as it once was. There's still an opportunity to catch it in this area. And personally, hopefully, I hope Dayton will one day get an indoor team again. Yeah, it's a lot of fun for sure. And, and back in those days of the original Dynamo, the indoor game was the only game around, really. Um, you know, it wasn't until 1996 that MLS and, and a top flight outdoor professional league really started to take off in the United States, and there had been some time since the original North American Soccer League had folded. Uh, so th there for a long time, it was the indoor game as king, and it's nice to see it still hanging on, and you know, maybe it'll make a resurgence once again. Here's hoping, my friend. Here's hoping. Uh, Chad, we're going to wrap up this episode, episode 14 of The Gem on the Queen's Crown, but what would you like to tell people about scratching the pitch to get them read your blog and possibly in the near future listen to your upcoming podcast, maybe? Well, uh, yeah, I hope to start a podcast again uh, in the near future. I don't have a timeline on that exactly worked out. But if you're at all interested in soccer at any level in, in the state of Ohio, uh, you know, whether it's Columbus Crew SC, FC Cincinnati, Dayton Dynamo, uh, AFC Cleveland, uh, the Dayton Dutch Lions, the Cincinnati Dutch Lions, any of the local colleges or high schools, I plan to cover as much of it as I possibly can. 
Um, speaking of college soccer, congratulations to the Akron Zips, who have advanced to the third round of the NCAA Division I men's tournament with a victory over Seattle. They'll be hosting the Wisconsin Badgers this upcoming Saturday. So I um, plan to provide some coverage of that. If, if you're at all interested in soccer in the state of Ohio, I hope scratchingthepitch.com will be able to provide what you're looking for. Go visit Scratching the Pitch. You will like it, and if you love soccer, you will agree that Chad does an excellent job on the coverage. I should also mention that Akron-Wisconsin game. Wisconsin happens to be the alma mater of Wright State's men's soccer head coach, Brian Davis, so I know the coach is going to watch that game and root on for his Badgers. But it's also nice to see that Ohio has such a strong, dominant college soccer team like the Akron Zips. So, Chad, if people want to follow you on social media, where can they hit you up? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Pitch Scratching or at Chat Hall, and you can find me on Facebook, Scratching the Pitch. And if you like to follow me, it's the Lee W. Mallon on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, and also like the Facebook page, The Gem on the Queen's Crown. And you can listen to this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Pocket Casts, StreamPod.net, Stitcher, TuneIn, TheLeeWMallon.com, my website, and GemCitySports.com. Chad, it's been a pleasure to talk soccer with you for over an hour, and you're more than welcome to come onto my podcast anytime you like, okay, friend? I appreciate it, friend. Thanks for the opportunity. That's Chad Hollingsworth, and that's the end of episode 14. Until next week, sports fans, this is Lee W. Mallon signing off. Thanks for listening to The Gem on the Queen's Crown. Don't forget to like the Facebook page, The Gem on the Queen's Crown. Follow the podcaster, The Lee W. Mallon, on Twitter and Instagram. Also, visit www.theleewmallon.com and www.gemcitysports.com Thank you.